for our COBT friends, first of all, thank you so much for your support this past year. It is indeed the one-year anniversary of Veriton, and we're just very excited about uh, all the things we've seen the past year and all the things that are coming uh, in the years to come. You might remember our first COBT at Veriton last year was with Secretary James Baker. That was really an honor for us and quite interesting. So as we thought about the first year anniversary and, and trying to find someone who could really give us some um, views on the world, help us all understand where this uh, great big planet of ours might be headed, uh, we thought of our good friend, Eric Cantor. Uh, you'll remember that he was the House Majority Leader uh, for many years in Washington. He's got a 30-year career uh, in politics and in business. He's now the Vice Chair at MOLIS. He's a Managing Director as well, so he spends his time with MOLIS's clients globally, uh, talking about all the issues around policy, uh, economics, markets, etc. So. Uh, let me just pause there and say, Eric, it's a delight to have you, a real honor, and uh, you're absolutely the perfect guy for our first anniversary show. Well, Maynard, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you, and congratulations on uh, reaching this milestone, and happy anniversary. Thank you so much. And I'm joined today, uh, Eric, by Jeff Tillery, uh, my partner, longtime partner. Jeff, uh, can you think of a better guest no, uh, to no. help us navigate today's world than Eric? No, it's, it's going to be really exciting to talk just Kind of intersection of policy and markets. You know, it's you know something we spend a lot of time thinking about with regards to energy, but we're able to kind of move up a level and, and talk about it more expansively today. We're excited to do that. Eric, I think as we thought about visiting with you, the the only problem was the um, the list of topics we might hit. Uh, this would be our first four hour podcast if we uh, if we were able to hit them all, but. <laughs> Maybe that'd be my, my first question for you. So um, from your vantage point, as you think about some of the issues that are on the radar right now, we obviously have Ukraine, uh, you have Iran, uh, you have China, uh, you, you have a, a border situation, we have a, an economy, debt, inflation situation. There are many things on the radar right now um, if you're in Washington and as a policymaker, how do you prioritize? What's the right pecking order to lean into these things? I think that's the thing uh, we're struck by as we think about the way all these issues are interacting and how they're all so important in their own way. You know, Maynard, it's, it's a great question because I'll tell you one thing. In, in today's world with the constant flow and rapidity of information, uh, it's hard to sift through all that and certainly as policymakers, uh, come to work every morning trying to understand where things are going. It is a challenge. So I, I think if you take a step back, you can sort of look at what I look at and say is, is there's three real pronounced sort of areas of concern within which both policymakers as well as market participants are grappling with. And I know in your discussions with your clients and certainly here at MOLAS, I, I think what I hear and, and discuss daily is one, the issues of monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, monetary policy has been you know, increasingly of concern for the market participants as it impacts you know, what we just saw with Jay Powell's recent increase in the Fed funds rate, uh, but also now fiscal policy is back on the table as we have divided government and as we have issues surrounding the fiscal health of our country and the increase in the debt load uh, and particularly the debt ceiling. But secondly, I would say in a much broader way and probably more on the political sort of sociological end of our country, I really think our social divide in the U.S. 
um, is impacting certainly the outcome that we see in Washington and is fueling some of the policy agenda. And I think thirdly, um, from a global perspective, the most important issue is really the geopolitics around the US-China relationship. And I think if you take all those things together, certainly you mentioned Ukraine and Iran, and there's plenty of other regional concerns, but I think they can all be sort of enveloped in, in those three issues. I, th I think the other thing you're struck by in this environment, uh, Eric, and I was visiting with a guy last night, uh, just socially, he has a pipeline business in Mexico, and he was talking about how Mexico has dramatically changed its politics and economics and basically really drifted uh, almost in a Venezuela-like direction without the, without the civil war and the, uh, you know, but there are things, there are so many pressing problems, smaller problems could be developing that we just don't have our eye on. It just, uh, it's sort of, um, and as you say, we've got this polarized, divided government and problems are grown. I don't mean to sound so negative, but uh, we're not dealing well with the problems we have. And there are probably other problems growing, I guess, is the observation. Well, you know, you know, it's so interesting to think about, though, here when people when folks say, you know, what do your clients think about the U.S. economy right now? And what do you think uh, is going on in our positioning globally? First of all, I want to say I am always bullish on America. I, I think just from a macro standpoint, we've defied all the critics in the media for sure with all these cries of the peril of democracy. You know, we just went through midterm elections and we saw this whole class of what was alleged to be election deniers, many and most of them failed in their election bids. Our institutions have held. We are very noisy. And because I think it comes from the freedom that we enjoy as individuals and the liberty that we're guaranteed in, in their rights in our constitution, but also our markets. You know, and the way that our markets have developed because of the rule of law, because of the transparency with which that law is applied through our judiciary, I just am very bullish on America, and I think that allocating capital here um, is the best um, course of action. Uh, and I realize that that uh, investors want to be, um, you know, uh, diversified and and uh, take into consideration not putting too much in one basket. But I, I will say that just um, at, from a, a macro perspective about the U.S. Now, I also think that those issues you talk about with Mexico and other countries. And um, this sort of closing in and looking inward uh, and um, this, this notion that protectionist policies are going to go and start to become in vogue again, I, I think you're correct about that. I think a lot of that in our country goes back to this sort of social divide and this fear um, that somehow we're losing that which we had, uh, which, which causes now politicians and policymakers to assume that position. But from a market participant standpoint, I think the best thing we can do is strengthen our economy here at home, because that will allow us to project our influence and power abroad. And that's what's allowed the prosperity to develop over the last 70, 80 years since World War II. So one thing you, you referenced in there is uh, the sort of increasingly protectionist or trade block type world we're living in. I know with Molus, you're talking to companies globally. Uh, they have global footprints, global businesses. Do you think this trend we're in now uh, globally, which it, from supply chain to protectionist to even climate, you know, interjects and people talk about taxes 
on you know high CO2 producers. But my it's a long way of saying, are we in a mini downward trend um, that'll be reversed and we'll kind of get back on the globalization path? Or do you think we have kind of uh, taken a turn here and we're going to continue to to do what we're doing, which is to push into trade blocks and away from globalization? Well, I, I do think there, there are a variety of factors that have sort of brought about, um, you know, the current mood of trying to uh, focus on nationalism rather than globalism. And, you know, really, uh, as you know, I think all of us have realized we've been through the last two and a half, three years with the pandemic. And we woke up and realized that there was a lot um, that had developed as far as our supply chains were concerned where it was all about efficiency of capital and the use of that and to get the just-in-time sort of inventory process down straight. And it, it did preserve capital. But in the end, what happened, it, it sacrificed resiliency and reliability. And so I do think that that was a piece of it. We then saw what happened with Putin's invasion in Ukraine and the impact certainly on your clients and MOLA's clients too in terms of the energy sector what that meant for supply chains and and what the lack of free supply from russia in terms of the energy focus and all the byproducts of of energy and the commodity whether it was fertilizer or whatever else we see every single day that's contributed to fossil fuels so all of that has pushed now towards countries beginning to think well what can we do for ourselves to make sure that we're resilient if this were to happen again and, you know, it, it results in things like the passage of uh, the IRA bill last um, last Congress under the Democratic control, which is a very um, nationalistic attempt to provide incentives for rebasing manufacturing here in the U.S. And as we've seen this week in, in the reports that the EU is moving to try and counter that as well. So I do think we're going to have much more. <laughs> over the short term, medium term of this of this regionalism. Is that something, uh, I think one thing that we've noticed here in, in Houston and in energy circles is uh, a lot of projects that were probably going to be done outside of North America, outside of the US, because of the IRA, a lot of people are thinking of moving those projects to the US and you feel the Europeans and others upset about that. It's this comment you just made. Is that something that you feel? Because it's also in the CHIPS Act. There's other, you hear people talking about U.S. industrial policy. Um, is that something you're feeling globally with clients? They're talking about this? Yeah, I, I do think. And, and just having been uh, abroad a, lot, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Davos, uh, it's certainly where um, the multinationals that are based abroad are feeling they need to reorient and think about how they can take advantage of the IRA. Many of them are wondering how um, the regulators will, will come up with the rules to implement this. There's a lot of money uh, and it will fuel a lot of private investment. Now, when I served many years in public office, I was always in opposition to industrial policy because I think we've seen in this country when you empower Washington to allocate capital, it really doesn't usually end up very well. I mean, just look at the financial crisis. It really was about what happened with those government-sponsored entities. And frankly, there was a hedge fund that developed within Fannie and Freddie 
that allocated a bunch of capital that ended up, um, you know, fleecing a lot of investors uh, and homeowners. So I, I worry about the outcome of this, but this is a trend now that has been started. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the CHIPS Act, you mentioned, Maynard, it's, you know, that was actually a bipartisan bill. And uh, that was the first time I saw on my side, you know, obviously as a um, limited government conservative Republican, you know, it was the first time I can see that the par my party um, and members of my party said, hey, it is a national security issue. We've got to deem this sector of, of semiconductors um, a, a national need, and we're going to begin to favor that sector. Again, I worry about that because it skews capital flows, uh, but that's where we are, and I think other countries are certainly following. And Eric, kind of dovetailing on some of those, you know, some of those policies, they certainly contribute to adding to our, our debt toll. You're in a, a different seat now versus the last time that the debt ceiling was, you know, front and center. Maybe talk about how you see, you know, you know, you know the puts and takes here. How does this compare versus the last time? And just any observations you'd like to, to, to share with us? You know, it's, it's, it's striking some of the some of the differences and the similarities. I mean, if you think about it, first of all, the real um, the real input that is going to change how this unfolds is the fact that um, in 2011, when we first encountered um, the um, this issue and it was just after the so-called Tea Party rise in 2010 election, when I became leader in Congress, um, that we, the Republicans, picked up a, a an extraordinary number of seats. And we had like a 24-seat majority, which gave you a margin as a leader to work with. Now, as we see, and, and at that time, interestingly, Kevin McCarthy was my deputy because um, uh, he had been my deputy whip and had just become majority leader, uh, I mean, majority whip when I was majority leader. And so we worked together, but we had a much bigger margin. He now, as speaker, has a margin of five. Right now, operationally, it's four because an individual in Florida fell off a ladder, and so he's not in Congress. He'll be back, and so there'll be a margin of five, but that's not a lot to work with. And we saw that unfold in the, res in the results of that when he ascended to speakership. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, President Biden now has assumed a position that he is, uh, is not negotiating with the Republicans. And openly, the administration says that debt ceiling must be raised without conditions. Well, ironically, last time, um, President Obama asked then Vice President Biden to sit down with us. And I met with him for months at a time, several times a week, to, to find where we as Republicans and he representing the Democratic Party could find agreement. Uh, and we had come out with a notion that we wanted to say, if we're going to raise the debt ceiling and saddle our future generations in this country, we want to make sure that for every dollar of, of additional debt incurred, we'd have and find some savings over dollar savings. So it's dollar for dollar. Currently, the Republicans have not coalesced around a strategy like that. They've said they want to see reduction in spending. There's no consensus yet, which is one problem. You add that with the fact there's a slim majority and you've got an administration which says, we really aren't negotiating, show us what you want to do. It's a much different environment. Uh, I think in the end, if you want to know where I think things will end up, the, the debt ceiling will be raised um, and uh, perhaps there will be some spending reductions. I'm not too... Uh, 
I'm not too confident about that because I think ultimately there is a break safe sale, uh, fail safe way of raising the debt ceiling. It's a procedural uh, um, initiative called the discharge petition that I think ultimately has a good possibility of being employed. What do you think, Eric, as you reflect us, you know, your time in Congress was 2001 to 2014. So you saw um, you saw the uh, 9-11 and, and the Iraq-Afghanistan Af- wars, and then you saw the financial crisis. Um, and then more recently, we've had uh, COVID, and then we had a lot of, um, you know, like this IRA infrastructure bill, et cetera, spending. So in other words, between your time and then some more recent times, we have had more than a handful of situations where we really said, we're going to spend like crazy because we have to for what, you know, you can debate all those various times. Is the, is the will or desire or even understanding of the problem of the debt and of the deficit? It seems like Washington doesn't even really talk about it. I mean, we've got a, a little conversation going again now with McCarthy and Biden, but it just seems, uh, it's really worrisome that so many people don't even rank it as a problem anymore, as it's getting really bad. Yeah, and unfortunately, Maynard, I think my party um, has doesn't have the best track record in living up to the rhetoric that we espouse in terms of fiscally conservative and limited government advocates. And if you look at the situation and what's causing the increase in indebtedness, for sure, the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, you know, the spending was amped up on steroids, which has now caused us to have a 30 plus trillion dollar debt load in this country. Incredible. It's it's so big. So but um, I, if you look at where the increase in indebtedness is due, it, it's really about the entitlement programs and, and, and specifically healthcare entitlements and the Medicare program. And if you recall back when, when I was in office and when we had these discussions with President Obama, Obama and then Vice President Biden, um, you know, the, the desire on the part of Republicans at that time, and it was much more fiscally oriented crowd um, than it is today, um, we said we wanted to see transformational change to that Medicare program. And essentially what we had proposed was changing Medicare from a defined benefit to a defined contribution program, which meant you offlay some of the risk onto the beneficiaries. Well, that does, in reality, change the nature of the safety net. And of course, politically, President Obama, Nancy Pelosi said, no way, we're not going for that. And that's really what caused the friction in the discussions with uh, between the two parties Ultimately, the compromise was we were going to chip away at some of the non-healthcare related, non-social security related entitlement programs that are at law and a lot of the discretionary programs. And remember, discretionary is what Congress deliberates on every year. It's a $1.4 trillion or so dollars, including the Defense Department at 800 and some billion, and then all the other sort of education and parks and all the things and services that government provides. But you could get rid of all the discretionary and you still have the problem. So it's hard politically. And I think, Maynard, that's why you've not heard it discussed a lot. And now you're seeing increasingly, due to, I think, President Trump, 
who said, look, we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. You're hearing Kevin McCarthy say that today. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like you say, it's I think politicians have said, hey, it's way too dangerous politically. We don't want to touch it. So you um, you mentioned this, that, uh, you know, McCarthy used to uh, work with you and uh, and you were on uh, that commission where you were talking with with Joe Biden about the dead. And so you 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 know, all these players uh, as you're watching this right now, uh, are you uh, optimistic that uh, McCarthy is going to be able to find a way to kind of thread the needle, work with Biden, get some improvement, uh, not overplay his hand, keep his uh, keep the fired up voices in his uh, group uh, under control? Like, what's your what's your outlook for this current situation? I'm cautiously optimistic, I will say, and underlining cautious. Um, I, I do think it's about expectations. And if Kevin can manage the expectations of his caucus, um, then there'll be more likely agreement with the Biden administration. The issue and the and the reticence I have in saying that that is definitely going to happen is the fact that, you know, Republicans sort of looked the other way during the Trump administration and just raised the debt ceiling without issue. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, they're all of a sudden their obstinance and opposition uh, to doing so now, I, I think it smacks of politics a little bit. You know, I mean, we we really have to think about, are we sure that we are convicted in terms of wanting to reduce spending, given the fact that this this was raised before at non-issue? And so it's that inconsistency that I always have an issue with. Um, But listen, we'll see. Again, I think that Kevin, um, he knows how to go and, and work the caucus. Certainly, we saw that in very, very tough struggle to get to become speaker. And to his credit, he kept the 200 plus people unified while he was dealing with the outliers. Uh, so if there's anybody that can do this, it will be he. But we'll see. You, you've talked in, in detail in a number of interviews about how and the process by which Washington became more polarized, why, why, why certain politicians found that the more they were fighting and being sort of belligerent, the more uh, popular and the more money they raised and that whole pattern. But at the same time, you also mentioned, uh, you know, some of the election denier types lost in the past election. There seems to be a movement uh, in the country back towards, uh, can we please calm this down and and work together? Where are we in those two trends? Uh, uh, Should we be optimistic that things are settling down or is this just a maybe a slight pause and the overall trend continues to be problematic. I think most people, most people in our country live their lives without really being concerned about the partisan divide that we have, but we have a real divide partisan-wise in this country. I mean, I think it's largely why the election in 2022 in November was as close as it was, and frankly, why there wasn't as many were prognosticating a red wave. And it really is because that the people almost are self-selecting where they live and where they work now to be with people who are of like mind. You see many more states who are unified, uh, either Democrat or Republican governance, um, much less split. Like my state is actually split still. We have one uh, uh, Democrats in control of the Senate, a Republican governor and a House in Virginia, whereas in Texas, you've got unified Republican governance. 
but I think it's uh, you're much more the trend. It's either red or blue. So if there is that divide. And I think much of it is about the incentives that are, are present with this, with social media that people are bombarded with every single day and the way that they receive their news. And so the incentives um, in politics now really comes down to the primaries. Because we are so dis distributed according to how we think and believe, on top of the fact that most people in this country do not participate in intra-party primary nominations processes. And mm -hmm. because of that, you get the extremes that are the ones that are participating, the ideological extremes, those who are hard and fast to the left or right. And so if that's, it's not irrational for politicians to go after that vote. They're the ones who turn out in nominations. So I think we are there right now. There are ways that and, and potentially ways to try and, and mitigate some of that. And there is something called ranked choice voting, yeah. uh, which is being experimented with, if you will, in some states that tends to produce maybe a more center-right, center-left sort of individual out of a nominations process. Um, whether that catches on nationally and we see a real shift, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I was going to pivot us a little bit from the policy world to more kind of the intersection of policy, you know, in markets, you know, we're in a, a different interest rate regime now and, you know, than we've been in, in a long while, maybe with the, the, the Mullis hat on, talk a little bit how you're seeing the implications of that, you know, the, whether it be the financial sponsor world restructurings or how that's, you know, impacting, I think our, our audience has pretty good feel for how that's impacting the energy business, but that kind of with a bigger picture hat on, I think it'd be you know, helpful, helpful to hear. Listen, this goes back to my point. The first issue of concern to market participants right now and our clients at Mollus is the monetary policy. And, you know, there is just a lot of uncertainty around it. I mean, if there were stability in the prices and if the rates were just elevated, I think people could adapt to that and then valuations would adjust and things could unfold. The problem right now is what we've seen because of the uncertainty um, around where the Fed is heading, credit markets have been extremely challenged. And to a point in the fall, I mean, there may be some signs indicating that they're loosening up or opening up again, but they were virtually frozen. And what that means for a firm like ours, and I'm sure you're seeing it as well, um, is, you know, it's just much harder to execute deals. And, you know, if, you, if you've got that difficulty, but then you have a, a very dynamic global economy where you've got a lot of things churning, right? You've got um, the, the, um, the, the monetary tapering going on in most of the West, right? And you've got the Russia-Ukraine war and you've got China reopening and you've got other pockets of the world and, and, and there are specific to them and their economies developing. A lot of need for, for market participants, investors and companies to assess their, their positioning and want to do something, want to transact. So what we're seeing at Mollis is we believe that this, this, this period of uncertainty and challenge in the credit markets is going to be short-lived. And all the while, we've got some pent-up demand, especially on the part of our sponsor clients, to want to transact. And we believe, again, uh, maybe at uh, you know towards Q2, Q3, we will see a real rebound uh, once there is some sort of signs of stability and certainty on the interest rate front. 
So kind of coupling that, Eric, a little bit with some of our IRA and CHIPS Act and the relative strength of the U.S. compared to the rest of the world, do, do you think that a lot of those sentiments will be manifested in uh, non-U.S. players coming to the U.S., like a lot of uh, transactions in, into the U.S.? Is that something that's on your radar? Well, I don't think there's any question that that what um, you know what we see and continue to hear is North America is a destination for capital allocation on the part of some of the big capital allocators, and I'm talking about the sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East and in and in Asia, um, and you know there is um, there is interestingly also though this question of where China is going to come out and what will happen. As we know, we've seen a dramatic fall off in terms of cross-border M&A on the part of Chinese players into the U.S. Certainly, it's been down in Europe, not as dramatically, but I think increasingly more challenged to see that kind of cross-border activity as well. Um, the administration in Washington is also contemplating some type of investor protection move outbound, which is inconceivable to me as to how they're going to actually come up with that regulation to govern an investor here's ability to invest somewhere else, which is China. But we'll see where that goes. The other interesting um, you know, um, sort of direction or flow is not only do you see like, for instance, the Middle East sovereign wealth funds have an interest in allocating capital here in the US, obviously with the price of the commodity, where it is, they are um, their economies in the Gulf are extremely robust right now. And so you're seeing a lot of people wanting to access those pools of capital for their opportunities here. So it does sort of pull and there's a demand for that capital to come to the U.S. All the while, as you point out, Maynard, there's the IRA, which is the sweetener um, for the energy transition piece. And there is the CHIPS Act, which is a sweetener in that sector as well. Mm. So there, there are a lot of things which, which would indicate capital flows into the U.S. So one thing, Eric, I was thinking about as you were as we were touching on all these uh, points is that, you know, one of the real strengths of the U.S. is its energy complex, its energy independence, uh, the low price of natural gas. Like that's a, a clear uh, advantage for us. And in, I was looking at your term in Congress, you know, 2001 to 2014. So when you came in, uh, the U.S. was importing like 60 percent of its oil. And when you were finishing, uh, the country was moving towards, um, you know, had changed that dramatically. Do you think people in Washington are realizing, because there was always this, this anti-oil and gas rhetoric that has been coming out of the Biden administration. Do you think they're realizing what a ace that is for the United States from a security standpoint and from an economy standpoint? And after all, it is cleaner and better produced than than it is in a lot of other places in the world. So you could argue it has a climate dynamic to it. But do you think, do you think people realize, and this is fresh on our mind because we had some folks in here this week talking about in 10 years, you know, the US energy industry might look much less healthy than it does today if we kind of stay on the certain path we're on. So I'm just kind of curious some of your impressions of energy and policy and sentiment around those issues? Look, I think um, energy security is a paramount import for prosperity globally and certainly in America. 
And if your question is, do, do policymakers, do politicians realize that? I'd say one side realizes it. I think there's no question, um, and I try and keep my partisan affiliation out of it, but the reality is um, there is such a strong commitment on the part of one side on the Republicans to say, look, you know, we have this asset, we should be unleashing uh, the power that we have in our indigenous resources here at home. And unfortunately, on the Democratic side, what you're seeing is um, the real the climate movement is is much more active uh, on the left. Um, the right has not. And in many cases, there is allegations um, about the right that they're climate deniers, et cetera. But um, there, there is a real commitment to energy transition on the left. Um, whereas I think it's more energy security on the right in Washington. And since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, I think the sense even in Europe is now, hey, wait a minute, we're never getting to that energy transition unless we have energy security in the form of more fossil fuels. And you're right. In the U.S., we do it cleaner. We do it more efficiently. So what we're seeing with our energy clients, if you want to just send parlay back over to the business side, is yes. There is all kinds of opportunity on the transition side because of IRA and other things, as well as the imposition of these restrictions in Europe and some of the states like California and elsewhere in the U.S. But the reality is energy security all of a sudden has become a priority. And what we're seeing is investors' willingness to say, you know what, there is going to be a long runway here where we have got to go in and continue to, to invest in exploration and production. Unfortunately, it's just not enough. Uh, but you know, I personally am very bullish um, on the conventional energy side. I do think technology is there, and you know better than I, about doing it cleaner, more efficiently. Um, and we will be winners in America because of what we are endowed with. And I just wish that the administration would allow that to unleash. And so we'll see. Maybe to stay on the on the climate topic for a second, you've know, got you know increasingly you know SEC regulations around you know, around climate and and uh, reporting requirements. You know the dovetail impact to the banking system. At the same time, you're seeing a number of states and pensions with some backlash to some of the some of the the asset managers. You know that's just creating a big swirl. Where, where do you think we go from here? Well, I mean, I think, you're, Jeff, you're exactly right. There is um, sort of a red-blue divide on so much of this. I mean, you know, you've got um, the administration claiming that it, it is continuing to support domestic production. Uh, you saw a flare-up a couple of weeks ago when the Republicans um, uh, put up a bill in the House saying there shouldn't be any more release from the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve unless there was an ability to lease more federal lands. It actually got a lot of bipartisan support. So I do think that that underscores um, the, the vision that people have. So they wait a minute, it's, it's affecting consumers if we're going to deny them access to affordable, reliable energy. Um, on the state level, um, you, what you've seen is you've got some states like yours in Texas, which have taken uh, moves to say to these financial institutions up here on Wall Street, Look, if you're going to go and be hostile to fossil fuels, not lend to companies because they're in that business, we're not going to allow you access to manage our assets in our pension plans. And on the other side, you've got the left in terms of the blue states doing the exact opposite and barring asset managers that do lend to fossil fuel um, mm -hmm. industry. 
So I guess, Jeff, this goes back to Maynard's point about when will we see the uh, uh, decreasing um, partisan divide? <laughs> this doesn't speak too well to that point, because I do think that you're really fast developing into this red, blue asset manager world, as well as the state political world. So one thing when you th you think about uh, that last question, Eric, is, you know, when when are we going to get people to calm down? <laughs> uh, we, we would need some leadership that is um, really all about the country and not his or her party. And then the most obvious place that that could come from is the presidency. And um, 2024 is coming. Uh, you know, uh, I, th I think a lot of us are watching and saying, wow, if you have a Biden-Trump showdown, uh, you're just going right back into, uh, you know, all of this polarization. Uh, is there some chance as you look at the presidential outlook and the candidates and the, and the ways things might develop that, that we get a leader um, who, you know, whatever party they are from, the, that we get a leader that really puts the country first and calls out their own party when that needs to happen and, and you know, is a balanced leader? Well, first of all, I mean, I think I think all of it, most of us want that in this country. And I, I would say, too, the more there is divided government and if there were divided government in the first uh, two years of a president's term, it does make it so that the opposition party in Congress um, would have to face four years of an obstructive stance in order to continue the current trend. And I'm not so sure the American people will put up with four years of obstruction. We've got two years to the presidential or less election now. And so we're already in mode and in cycle. So to your question about 24, is it Trump Biden? Right now, I will continue to say there is one person in the Republican Party that has more influence than any other, and that still is Donald Trump. He's got a dyed in the wool base that come hell or high water, they'll be with him. And if what develops here now that the same as which developed in 15, um, meaning there's Trump and then eight, nine other candidates, you're going to see an, a similar outcome. Now, obviously, it's still a long time between now and the nominations process. It's a year until we get into full mode, full swing. And he's got plenty of obstacles to overcome, decisions that he's got to make that will be very impactful towards his potential uh, nomination if that's what happens. On the Democratic side, it's you got to go back to the late eight, 1800s to even see a party of a, a nominee of any party that didn't take advantage of incumbency. So, in other words, I think it was Rutherford Hayes, who was a one term Republican who who ran and then said, I'm not going to do it again. Um, again, incumbency is such a powerful tool in, in reelection that. I don't see President Biden not running. So I think to your question, it's more likely than not, at least today, I would say that we're going to see a redo. So there's, a, I guess, a, going back to where we started, there's another potential problem on the radar. Is <laughs> that matchup. But, Maynard, but, but Maynard, remember this, though. Our country, unlike any other, has less involvement of government in our overall economy. We are, what, 21 percent plus um, of government spend to GDP, which means our private sector is empowered. And that's where the difference can really be made. So Kent, maybe I could ask you a, a thematic question along those lines. I, th I think it was perhaps in Bill Clinton's second term when he said the era of big government is over. 
And now we are, uh, you know, probably 25 years or so since that comment and the era of big government and government being involved in so many aspects of life. Uh, part of it was COVID, but part of it is philosophy. Is that trend? Um, freedom seems to be taking a hit and, and private enterprise and capitalism is taking a hit. Where, where are we as a society uh, in that um, back and forth? Well, well, first of all, I go back to my comment about, again, if you compare us to the rest of the world, it's we wake up every morning, no matter who's in charge in Washington and go about our business trying to create value, create opportunity, jobs and wealth. Right. And more so than anywhere else. So I do still believe in that. I also believe we are as a country, we're a disruptor when we were founded because we're the only country in history whose central government was founded on the notion that it had to limit its power and that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And therefore, you distributed the framers of the Constitution, distributed the power to the states. And at the federal level said, we're gonna divide into three. So no one person or entity or branch was king. So I, I do believe very much in, in our constitution and that limitation of powers. And if you look at the bill of rights, the guarantee of individual rights in, in those amendments to the constitution. So I don't think that we are headed towards somehow gonna be like a socialist European country, but I do worry that on my side of the aisle in particular, because I do think that we've, my party, at least when I came up as a Republican, we were the party of individual liberty, free markets, and limited government. And increasingly, you're seeing a divide, and you're going to see it play out on the Ukraine funding issue coming up. Uh, you're going to see it, um, and you've already seen it sort of play out in some of the fights with the unions versus the railroads where all of a sudden you're seeing Republicans who are deemed conservatives say, wait a minute, we, we need to use the levers of government and power to affect the ends that we're trying to achieve. You saw Ron DeSantis do it in Florida on the Disney question. Um, and so increasingly Republicans are saying, hey, wait a minute, if we don't use those levers, certainly the other side will, which again goes to your point, all of a sudden, government and its powers become bigger and more impactful on our lives. And, and Eric, you mentioned a bit ago you were in Davos, you know, in Molis with their global presence. You know, what are the two or three issues you'd share, either your takeaways from, from, from your time over there or just the hot button issues in Asia? Well, I mean, well, first of all, the, the um, front and center issue in Davos this year was Russia, Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Russians notably absent, Ukraines, the Ukrainians were there in mass and they had a united voice, as with most other NATO countries, most NATO countries and the West is like, basically, we're not giving up an inch and now we must win. And we're not just fighting Russia, we're fighting for democracy. And so they have sort of uh, cast the argument in a much bigger way. But yet, and, and what's so striking about that is that Nothing's really changed. I mean, there's been a lot of momentum because, you know, we've seen a lot of dollars flow into their coffers from the U.S. taxpayer. We've got huge and much more powerful artillery, long range missiles and now tanks, uh, Patriot defense systems, the whole the whole package. Uh, and yet there's no discussion about what a peace looks like. So. You know, we're going to we're going to be in for, I think, a long slog with this war. 
Um, that was the number one issue for sure, with no real resolution. Uh, I do think the issue you mentioned, Jeff, Asia, um, um, China and its sort of realization, although it would never, Beijing and the Communist Party would never admit it, that they really screwed up, pardon the uh, vernacular there, on their zero COVID policy. And so I do think now they're reopening. Uh, Vice Premier Li He was at Davos and he was talking about the desire for more foreign investment in China, that they were committed to entrepreneurialism. You know, all the nice talk came from Beijing to Davos. But I think, and from speaking with folks on the ground, it's just the realization of that hasn't yet manifest. So we'll have to see. Um, and obviously that has a huge impact um, on global, on the global economy. And if China does resume its role as we were used to, what that does to inflation, uh, what the Fed's response is, and what the other central banks do. So there's a lot, lot in store. But I would also say, again, from China's positioning geopolitically, the fact that the rest of the world, the developing countries, they aren't really with us on Ukraine. You know, they're not supportive of the sanctions. They're not supportive of what we're doing. So it gives China an ability to forge increased ties to the rest of the world while we're very focused on that. So that's a worrisome thing to me from a geopolitical standpoint. So, you know, one, one area I was just thinking, uh, Eric, that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, uh, we mentioned Mexico, but Latin America broadly, um, you know, the administration had some interesting outreach to Venezuela around oil, which I think surprised a lot of us in energy country. And then there are stories about Iran, uh, you know, trying to push its influence in Latin America. We, we don't seem to have our eye on the ball in Latin America. Are there things happening there that we should all be more aware of? Um, you know, it's just a region that between Asia and what's going on in Europe and the war and all these things, it just doesn't get discussed. And I wonder if we are missing something there. I, I couldn't agree more, Maynard. Somehow or another, Latin America has just never been the priority it should be. It's in our hemisphere. We are closest. Obviously, a country like Brazil is so critical in terms of resources. Its role in the global economy vis-a-vis -vis China is, is very significant. Uh, and yet, what we've seen politically in, in that continent is most of those countries, if not all, have moved to the left. I mean, look at the mm -hmm. election of Lula uh, in, in, in Brazil. So um, there is, um, unfortunately, not somehow or another, um, uh, we've not prioritized that from a trade standpoint. And if we think about this trend back where you were mentioning before of regionalism, certainly mm -hmm. Mexico is the obvious uh, country to turn to to try and embrace but as you say, it's adopting and its policies are even more extreme lately. Um, so very difficult um, and challenging and uh, just not been a priority. And I do think certainly from the resource standpoint, energy especially, they're, they're very, very critical uh, and that should be a priority. So, so one other place, I guess, if you would think of the, uh, the geopolitical map, uh, you know, Latin America seems... Um, you know, it's kind of a swing state, so to speak. Um, the, the other one that seems like a swing state is India. And India is obviously now, you know, competitively has gained a lot on China, has a lot of momentum. 
Um, that seems to be the other place we should all be really paying attention, particularly uh, our leadership in Washington. What do you think about India? What are your observations there, its role, how important it's going to be? Well, obviously, you know, we, we at Mullahs have an office in Mumbai and do, do a lot of business there. And we've seen, you know, increased activity in the part of uh, investors wanting to have exposure to uh, India. It will be, uh, it is the world's largest democracy. And I think will, if not already, surpass China in terms of population, which is a good thing. Uh, it needs the U.S. in terms of its posture with its neighbor, China. Um, the, the, um, the challenge is um, the traditional relationship that India has with Russia, uh, because, you know, long ago when, um, you know, when this, when our country believed that India was going towards the communists and the rest, you know, we didn't always provide them with what they were desiring uh, which was the defense systems and the weaponry. So their defense industry is heavily reliant on, on Russia. And so I think that has a lot to do with the posture that Mr. Modi has taken vis-a-vis -vis the Russia-Ukraine war. I mean, he has said we need to calm the uh, hostility and try and do something about it. But at the end, as we know, um, it's, it's purchasing oil from Russia and it hasn't gone along with the sanctions. Well, I think we... We were unaware of this statistic until we dug into it a little bit, but they import 85% of their oil. So when you're that dependent for your energy on the outside world, it goes back to our energy, your energy security comments. Everybody, everybody wants it and needs it. Right. And, and so you've got that plus the added piece on the security question on the defense side. So it's hard for India to deal with that. India, um, you know, obviously very hostile to China. So the administration has taken a position where we are increasingly trying to position the quad um, with uh, Australia, I India, the Japanese to try and get up an Indo-Pacific strategy to, um, you know, try and, and, and provide some security vis-a-vis -vis the rise of China. The problem is, and this gets back to the question of protectionism, we've been unable to really offer much as a country because politically it's unpalatable to say we're gonna enter a trade agreement now for anyone else because of the need for jobs here uh, and or at least the rhetoric around that. So it's, it's a complicated issue, but investors still, I think, are um, of a long, longer term are very excited about India. It's not an easy place to do business. Um, mm -hmm. And the transparency of the regulatory system, et cetera, is, is a challenge. Uh, but I think longer term holds a lot of prospect for American investors. Yeah, we spend you know, most of our time thinking about energy issues. Um, and one of the things you know, I'm curious to get your perspective on is you know, to end up with better policy, better, better regulatory environment for energy, what sort of um, I know, alliances or what, what, what could energy do to help the non, in, your, your non-energy you know, client base you know, you know, help with the go-forward framework? Because the you know, energy industry has kind of you know, made its bed to, to, to some degree you know, over, the, over the last you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, but but going prospectively, energy security and, and and energy prices are really impactful to almost all of your clients. And so I'm just curious, what do you think the the sector could do better? Well, listen, I, I think in my mind the sector is key to prosperity. I mean, I think that it's it's demonstrated that um, you know without fossil fuels, the prosperity that has um, unfolded over the last seventy plus years wouldn't have taken place. And 
you know, now we have a situation where there's almost religion on the part of the climate crowd, um, and it's drowning out the reality um, that we need fossil fuels in order to transition, and we're going to need them for a long time. So, uh, Jeff, I think behind your question is how do we inject um, some more moderation in the discussion that's become so extreme. Um, unfortunately, the war, and it took war to sort of wake people up to the need for energy security. And I think if we can focus on the question of energy security, the need for balance, uh, the need for less extremity, um, and frankly, the impact on everyday Americans. Uh, everyday Americans' access to affordable energy is something that we're used to in this country. And if we do not moderate the policies coming out of Washington and encourage investment in the sector, in the conventional sector, not just the transition renewable sector, there's going to be a negative impact on people's pocketbooks. And I think focusing on that is the most important. Well, Eric, you've been very generous with your time. I just have a one baby question on my mind and then the big one, which is thinking about the world 10 years from now. But the, the real small question is, uh, we had a conference once where Mike Pompeo said, uh, the biggest threat to America is where it gets its news and how it gets its news. And you referenced it. We all live in our news cocoons now. So we never, our minds are never open to what the other side is saying. How do you get your news? How would you advise the rest of us to get better, more independent news? Are there, are there good sources out there that the rest of us are missing? Talk to us about that problem. As Maynard, I suffer with that every day like you and everyone else does. You wake up in the morning and you are drowning even when you open your eyes in, in information flow. And I've always thought that it's just really important to to expose yourself to all sides. And so obviously I, I sort of straddle the policy political world and the markets and business world. So that's two for me, but then it's the right and the left on both of those. So, you know, I've found that the, the, the business oriented press um, tends to be a little bit more down the fairway, if you will, and not as extreme as the political press, but really important to, uh, to wake up, read the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and then you compare that with Washington Post, New York Times, um, and even FT and The Economist, because I think that'll get you the um, sort of the panoply and the spectrum, if you will, of opinion. Uh, but realizing that just reading the opinion pages doesn't mean you're void of opinion and everything else. And you've got to always have that critical lens on because journalism has become about opinion now. And it's really hard for every one of us to discern what is news and what is opinion. So. Well, we do, we do always try to think about where the world is going over the next decade. So I know it's a really hard, totally amorphous question. But when you think about the next 10 years, either from your seat at MOLIS or uh, from your dealings with energy or or policy, what what's on your radar ten years out that is um, that the rest of us should also have on our radar? You know, that's it's a great question. Although I struggle to even uh, to uh, to get straight on <laughs> the next year or three yeah. years. Yeah, so, no, we get that a lot too. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, I, I just I'm 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 an optimist, and and I really feel like you know 
the ability for America to innovate, the resiliency of our economy, um, the depth of our capital markets that can fuel innovation, um, we need to keep focusing on that. And especially in the energy world, realizing that the transition is going to be many decades. And you know, the, the balanced approach in terms of investing in cleaner, more efficient uh, production processing of fossil fuels, while we are trying to understand how we can get storage straight, how you can go and make that leap to renewables, um, I think is going to be the best way forward. Unfortunately, our system of advocacy doesn't really work that way. And the more the information comes at you, the louder the advocates have to be and the more extreme their positions. So it'll be a fight, but I'm very bullish on where we as Americans and Americans in business uh, can take our country and our standard of living if we just focus on it. Eric, that's a great place to end. And, and I'll end with where we started, which is this is our first anniversary. And uh, we were honored to have James Baker with us last year. We're so honored to have you. You were the perfect guest and we can't, we can't thank you enough. Well, Maynard, thank you. And Jeff, thank you. And look forward to uh, uh, a very exciting year ahead and hope to see you soon. Come see us in Houston. Thanks so much, Eric.